1: going behind the headlines
0: of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and I'm delighted to say that joining me for The Big Picture today is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, we have plenty to talk about, much <laughs> linked to the, uh, the early days of um, the new Prime Minister's uh, tenure. Um, so where do we where do we start? I mean, we had this sort of very strange week and a half, didn't we? Um, when real life seemed to sort of come temporarily to a halt, while we um, had the sort of uh, funeral arrangements for um, the late Queen. But boy, politics would come back with a, a, a bump. So well, where do we want to begin? Well, I think we have to begin with the budget
1: that wasn't called a budget, but was definitely a budget <laughs> last Friday. And you, you mentioned, of course, we just had this rather bizarre interregnum where of course the country is officially in a period of national mourning for the queen uh what you we were seeing throughout that period were low-level briefings of coming out from the treasury in downing street about the sort of things that we might see in the budget statement and so this this was this was uh, dubbed the plan for growth this was intended. This was intended to carry forward a lot of what Liz Truss had said during the Conservative leadership election, and for anybody who got a bit sick of the internal debates, her essential argument was that the essentially to spur the UK economy on to growth, the idea is that she believed the tax burden had to come down. That was the big divide line between her and Rishi Sunak, particularly around national insurance. Um. However, what we have seen in the government taking shape and the important context that we have seen in this is that the people who've moved in into advise trust have been drawn very much from the, uh, sort of the extremes of the free market wing of the Conservative Party, particularly the Taxpayers Alliance and the Institute of Economic Affairs, who favour the trickle-down economics approach. Now, I'm sure our listeners are all very familiar with that, but essentially it means you, you free up... Uh, wealth at the top of a society, mainly through tax cuts, and that wealth then moves down through the system as it frees up more money on the whole. Now, I should start this off by saying that there's going to be a lot of bashing of tax cuts in this in this podcast from me. This is not to say that tax cuts themselves are a bad thing, but the I think people were taken aback by the scale of which the Chancellor and the Prime Minister pursued this goal. And... The context of this announcement is that there was, uh, for for most of the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, certainly since 2010, the Conservative Party has pursued certainly a a policy of relatively sound money in the sense that it it believed in keeping a lid on borrowing and keeping the UK's Budget deficit and net borrowing imbalance that obviously went out of the window with the pandemic. We had this huge period of big government spending, a deficit reaching four hundred billion in one year, and the sheer size of um, net GDP to debt ratio coming to about one hundred percent for the first time since the nineteen sixties. Now, there was what was starting to happen now is there was some sort of correction for that. What nobody had foreseen is that inflation would reach the levels it has done now. It's, uh, it's now at double digits. The Bank of England has revised up its forecast. I wouldn't be surprised if it reached into um, 14, 15%. The government took, the, the trust government came into office and acted, I think, very swiftly in the, and decisively in that area to set in, to try and tame one of the main drivers of inflation which has been rising energy prices driven by among other things the war in ukraine but also by flaws in the uk's energy market as well by limiting the price that we pay per kilowatt hour i think that actually was a very sensible but expensive intervention uh, that's been uh done at uh, uh about 60 billion pounds for the next six months that's been set for two years so they started off with this and then of course the queen passed away. And, Things went very quiet. The thing that went unnoticed at the time was that one of the other first acts that the Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng did was he sacked the last kind of long-standing senior civil servant at the top of government um, who's been around pre-sort of 2019, which is Tom Scholar at the Treasury. Boris Johnson's government already saw the Cabinet Secretary, the Foreign Office Permanent Secretary, and the Home Office Permanent Secretary all leave government under various guises. Uh, the Philip Rutland, the Home Office Secretary, notably, of course, uh, took the government to court because of alleged workplace bullying by the former Home Secretary Pretty Patel. So Tom Scholar was, is in kind of many ways a marked man, and in hindsight, we should have seen Tom Scholar's sacking as kind of an ominous omen for what has yeah. happened in this budget, which is, is essentially. As the cost of borrowing has has been rising, government borrowing has been rising, as inflation has been going up, the cost of servicing government debt, which is already considerable, has been increasing over the last 12 months through inflation, the the Chancellor and the Prime Minister took the decision to essentially borrow £50 billion to fund a wide-ranging raft of tax cuts. The most expensive of these, of course, was cutting the National Insurance Entitlement, which was by no means a popular tax by any means but still putting the edges funding in, but they went further than that, and I think one of the most bizarre interventions was the although it was a comparatively small amount was although a lot of this had been briefed out to the media beforehand, the government decided to also bring forward a cut in the basic rate of cat tax as well again something that is comparatively popular, but also scrap the forty five p top rate for those earning over a hundred and £50,000. Now, in the words of Paul Johnson, the very respected head of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, if you earn, this is a budget essentially, if you earned over £155,000 a year, this is a budget in which you gained. If you, anything less than that, you lost. So essentially, it was very easy for this budget to be painted as a budget for the rich. And it's hard to explain the market reaction since then. There has been absolute turmoil currency markets have seen the pound fall to its weakest level it feels like a sort of black wednesday in slow motion now i think the only thing we can be very thankful for is the fact that interest rates are now in the in the hands of the bank of england entirely and that the chancellor isn't ratcheting them up to try and stop people going after the currency but the, the day before we record this there was considerable panic on the gilt markets particularly about the risk of exposure to pension funds had in this as well which saw the bank of england say they would step in with a 65 billion pound bond purchasing program as well so to give you a sense for the first time in a long time this is talking to, i was talking to someone the other day who knows a bit rather than myself they were saying that actually what we have had for most of the last 10 years is economic and monetary policy pulling fiscal and monetary policy pulling in the same direction they are now diverging the bank of england is ratcheting up interest rates at a time in which the government is trying to take inflation through tax cuts which actually could have a quite an inflationary effect and the result has been almost i would argue a complete loss of confidence in the in the markets in the trust government's economic policies and probably best epitomized by an extraordinary statement from the international monetary fund which was very critical of the government's economic plans essentially in a political sense if people are wondering where all the spiel is going Truss has decided to gamble big on these tax cuts and to stake, uh, in the words of the IMF, uh, sorry, the the IFS, I should say, to stake her government's reputation to bet the House on this incredibly uh, ambitious programme of tax cuts and deregulation, which has very little basis in sound economic policy of generating the kind of growth that she thinks it will. Certainly the tax cuts that she's put forward, Simon, will not pay for themselves. It looks to the outside like an absolute gift to the Labour Party, and I think many Tory MPs, certainly those who subscribe to more of what the what Trust's government would say is the Treasury orthodoxy, view this as politically naive, stupid and suicidal. And it's hard. I, 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 will, I will pause here because I, there, is a, there is a lot for our listeners to digest. <laughs> but, but there's one point to push back on here. This is the fact that the, the political messaging that this was, this was done, the Chancellor stood up when he gave this speech and said, I am throwing treasury orthodoxy out the window. What he means is that actually, you know, there's been a groupthink here. He said, treasury groupthink has held us back. Now, I I utterly reject this notion of treasury groupthink because groupthink to me implies consensus. It implies continuity. We've had nothing in that for fiscal policy since 2010. Since 2010, the Tories have done the following. In fact, they've done austerity. And uh, spending cuts to try and um, treat the size of the state when borrowing was cheap. We then had the whatever the Brexit dividend phase was, you know, with you know, things like the fiscal firepower. We then had big statism under the Johnson government. And now we've gone completely the other way in terms of this neo Reaganite approach to economics borrowing at a time when the money markets are already spooked about it as well. Where is this group thing coming from? There is no continuity. All I'm seeing is a Conservative party that doesn't really know how to manage the country's finances. If there was any consensus or continuity, arguably the markets might feel a little more uh, reassured than they actually are.
0: Um, Well, you said that was a lot for us to take in. So let us um, briefly uh, pause and then we shall return to um, this subject.
1: Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
0: This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. Uh, Mike, everybody was warning that we might be heading for a recession, so presumably the aim... What was at the back of their mind was the idea that we can ameliorate um, or even possibly head off uh, a forthcoming recession. I mean, it's been predicted pretty much around the developed world. I mean, do you think that's what they're aiming to do? Absolutely. I mean, let's trust us very clearly during the Tory leadership
1: campaign that she thought the tax cuts would be the key to fending off uh, the recession. Now, obviously, this, this is, I think, where we have to come back to criticizing that Treasury group think. Uh, notion as well because actually the uh, treasury officials staged the most effective uh economic intervention of the last 10 years i would argue since the banks were bailed out uh in the form of the furlough scheme which as we all know was widely credited with preventing widespread unemployment and the long and the long uh and the, the long-term scarring to the economy that would have resulted in whereas the government has essentially pursued things like the policy of leaving the eu which as we know has probably permanently lowered our gdp by about four percent in the long term because of that so again if, if this trust is not an economist I, I doubt that she has the the credibility in this space to be able to to make a good argument for the tax cuts as, as a solid one but it, it just feels that there is an increasing the ideological component to this and unfortunately the conservative party has only really been successfully when it's been ideological once before when it was in under margaret thatcher and that, only because at the time that degree of um free market thinking aligned with people's increasing aspirations and frustrations with the post-war consensus. Actually, the ideological rigidity of this suggests that the policy is being pursued for the sake of it rather than actually with any solid basis that tax cuts in themselves would prevent a recession. Mm. Certainly not the tax cuts that literature trust is um pursuing. And there may be people listening to this who say, well, actually, you know putting money in people's pockets at this time when cost of living is going up and gross is is, is is a good thing. Well, that, well, I would agree. But the court, the two tenants, for example, of Truss's arguments are that cutting taxes and deregulating essentially will essentially spur economic growth. So let's let's look at two of those indicators. So first of all, corporation tax. And what the other big tax cover essentially Truss put in place was reversing the planned increase back to 25%. So since 2010, the Tories have lowered corporation tax gradually from 25% down to 19%. Boris Johnson was committed to reversing it to bring some more revenue in. If that reversal had gone ahead back up to 25%, we'd have still been around about the OECD average. And there was actually no correlation between tax, between tax, uh level of corporation tax, tax, corporation tax burden, or even indeed, indeed overall tax burden and levels of growth For example, Germany has a corporation tax rate of 30%, which is 11% higher than this country. And they have a far more successful and productive economy than we do. There's no correlation between tax burden and, and um, prosperity, economic prosperity, per, certainly per capita GDP in that way. And indeed, the UK's per capita GDP is actually falling. We're falling out of the top five uh, most successful economies in the world. The other thing is the level of regulation. Now, we're among one of the least regulated economies in the OECD. There is not a lot of regulation to cut. And the other thing that the government did as well, which is bizarre, it seems to be, there seems to be a promised bomb for our EU regulations was they scrapped the capital bankers' bonuses. Now, politically, that looks incredibly naive to do at this particular point in time. Now, it may be that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are right if, if, if there is if we return to growth, if we avoid a recession, if our country prospers in the next couple of years because of these measures, then I think they could be rightly deserved for credit. But unfortunately the weight of evidence against them is overwhelming now that's not to say that you know they're wrong to read against consensus and if you know in politics especially sometimes people that take gambles are are um rewarded but there is an air i think of ministers touring the broadcast studios particularly the chief secretary of the treasury chris philp of the famous misquote of jim callaghan Callahan here crisis what crisis and the bank of england doesn't just step in for no reason and the chancellor has spent the couple of days before we record this meeting with senior figures in the city and American banks are trying and reassure them that he actually knows what he's doing. The Prime Minister's been doing tours of local radio studios this morning. And, sh- and the other thing, of course, that, that's happened as a result of this is that a large number of mortgage providers have been pulling their best fixed rate products from the market because they can't be sure about the rates at which those products could be lent at as well. And given the fact that the UK economy is so heavily dependent on the financial services industry as well, it seems that, you know, the, you know it doesn't seem that, that to me that you know, as much as the government talked about making the city more competitive, <laughs> it's you, already a fairly competitive place. but just seems to be undermining confidence in one of our main yes. uh, economic assets.
0: Um, you talked You talked earlier about uh, being glad that the Bank of England is independent. I mean, but long before um, Trust got the keys to 10 Downing Street, there were many in the financial markets, criticising the Bank of England for for not having tried to get on top inflation too early. I and mean, if we go back uh, six months uh, a year, the Bank of England and indeed the Fed were basically saying, you know, inflation, what inflation? It's purely transitory. Um, so, I mean, to some extent, the Bank of England presumably is now having to catch up um, which is one reason perhaps that they're, they're at odds with the, with the government. I mean, whatever would happen, the Bank of England presumably needs to put up interest rates. I mean, there was some surprise, wasn't there, that rates went up by 50 basis points instead of 75 basis points as at the Fed. So the presumably the governor of the Bank of England is in a somewhat difficult position at the moment.
1: I think we can, we can be too sympathetic to Andrew Bailey in this as well, and I think we must recognise that actually we really are missing Mark Carney in the role here. Mark Carney had far more attuned political antenna. And he understood that although the bank is normally independent, and it should be, in my opinion, I think it's right, right, that interest rates are not used as a political tool by the government of the day. We just have to look at Black Wednesday to know why this happened. The Bank of England's independence is not questioned here. Bailey is very much more a a financial services regulator, says that he wants to stick to his core remit of keeping inflation at 2%. Now, I'm not an expert on the politics of the bank here. Um, but it's fair to say that having a central bank pulling in the opposite direction to fiscal policy is not a good thing. And also the fact that although the bank is also raising interest, it hasn't worked up its program of quantitative easing, which is essentially devaluing the pound through printing lots of money. And they've done more of it by buying government bonds. And we come back to the point I've made on this podcast before, it's that any bonds the government, the bank buys, it holds for only a year or so as opposed to 10 years. And ultimately, this is very much a quick fix. The, the this budget was the biggest tax-cutting budget in 50 years. But the last time, even bigger than Nigel Lawson's budget in 1986, 1988. And but the, the last time that, that the Tories tried to t- cut taxes to stimulate growth was actually Anthony Barber and Ted Heath's government, the dash for growth. And that, as we both know, Simon did not end well. It ended up with a, a decade of economic malaise. I'm not saying Labour did any better in that decade as well. There were numerous problems in that. And, that paved the way for Thatcherism, but this is not a new, this is not a new or particularly successful economic idea as well. The the conclusion I've come to is that this intervention is landing so badly at the moment, the government will either have to seriously set out some credible arrangements you know they're already encouraging departments to try and find efficiency savings but it's going to put the public finances in such a perilous state again that the conservatives will essentially put themselves back in arguably a worse position than they claim labor left the country in in 2009 to 10 and one thing we mustn't forget is that the myth this government has perpetrated throughout its entire time in office is that it was Labour's fault that the economy was in the state that it was in in 2008, whereas actually we were dealing with an economic, a global economic shock. This situation, if we end up with a situation where, you know, for example, we had to go back to 1976 and the IMF bailout again, you know, the government borrowing being unsustainable and the money markets are already losing confidence in the government's ability because of the economic plans. The IMF intervention reflects that, and you have free marketeers arguing that markets are essentially wrong. They are no longer free marketeers; they are um, libertarian ideologues. I would argue it leaves a situation where the public finances are in a poor state, and it means that any whatever, whatever shade of government we have in 2024 2025 especially if it's labour there there won't be enough money around to do what things need to be done, and the more extreme example, some former monetary policy makers, have said that there could be spending cuts that could potentially destroy institutions like the NHS which at the moment, accounts for roughly a third of government spending. So these are serious questions, and we could arguably be in a situation where, because of a, a rash and impulsive decision, the country is forced to undergo a serious reckoning. But also the Conservatives have essentially undone all the work they've tried to do over the last 12 years, and I don't think anyone should really forgive or forget that if this lands as bad as it does. That said, if it does work out well, I'm quite prepared to admit I was wrong
0: and to metaphorically eat my hat. Uh, Only metaphorically, okay, yes, but I think the chances are very slight. Um, Mike, just very briefly, you've talked about Labour a little. We have been having the Labour uh, Party conference, so uh, you were talking about this being a great gift to them, but apart from the fact that they've been shooting at what seems to be an open goal, what else did we learn? Well, surprisingly, what we have learned is that Labour, for the first time,
1: have, I think, some justifiable confidence in their position. Helped by the fact that a couple of opinion polls have shown them having fifteen to seventeen point leads over the Conservatives, which would, if if the election was today, if the election was happening in a few months' time and wasn't two years away, I think Labour would feel very very confident. But given the fact the party is has was in such a bad state in two thousand and fifteen to nineteen, and then since two thousand and nineteen on two hundred seats, and Keir Starmer has had to try and make a um, try and make a pitch in that space against two different prime ministers and COVID. The party was beginning to firstly talk openly about returning to power. And in all honesty, a pitch, they could do far worse than doing a pitch based on sound fiscal policy and management, especially remember that you have the shadow chancellor as a former Bank of England economist in Rachel Reeves. So somebody who could easily become quite a credible voice in this space what is missing, though, in Labour's policies is a narrative of excitement. In his, in his conference speech, Keir Starler argued that this was a Labour moment. Like 1945, like 1964, like 1997, these are moments in which Labour leaders captured the zeitgeist and were able to make the change. Atley. Wilson and Blair each, though, had a unifying theme or a set of ideas that captured people's imaginations. least was the NHS and the, uh, the better, the New Jerusalem. Wilson's was the white-hot tea, heat of technology. And Blair's was New Labour, change and education, education, education. Starmer hasn't found that yet. Now, I would argue that his theme should be making Britain ready for the 2030s, Britain ready. I think that is a theme that would, would work well if he relies too much on the competency angle, I don't know if that will excite people enough. And that's the risk that you run, say, that Hillary Clinton had in 2016 and arguably Joe Biden had in 2020, although Joe Biden did win that election. But if people are see, if Labour see this too dull, it won't bring people out enough to vote for it. But then again, as Steve Richards often says, the uh, government, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And if this government continues going down the way it is, the Tories will either defenestrate Lizard Trust, and believe you me, they, because the, the, nothing is quite like the Conservative Party for that instinct for um, selfish self-preservation, mm-hmm. or they will go into that election with the a comp, a dull, competent Starmer government looking quite appealing to some people. But I still think Labour are being too optimistic at the moment. There's still a lot that could go wrong in the next couple of years. And who knows, maybe these policies will work. If it does, then that's going to leave Labour in a very, very difficult position. And one in which, arguably, if the party doesn't win the next election, the Tories somehow do, where I think Labour itself really has to start asking itself difficult questions about where it comes from in UK politics and what it offers to people.
0: Mike, thank you very much. I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Mike will be back talking to me in the bigger picture in a fortnight's time.
1: The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines
0: of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.